Chromium is an open-source browser that shares code with the Chrome browser from Google. A browser is a large piece of software with engineering challenges around threading, rendering, resource management, and networking. To add to the complexity, Chrome runs on iOS, Android, Mac OS X, Windows, and other platforms. Chrome OS is an operating system based on Chrome. There's also Chromium OS, which is the open source version of Chrome OS. The Chrome and Chromium operating systems are based off of the Linux kernel. There's a whole lot of complexity in all these different projects and a lot of overlap between them. Chrome and Chrome OS and Chromium and Chromium OS and all of the deployments that they maintain on the different platforms, on iOS, Android, the other operating systems I mentioned. And to add to that, throughout the entire episode, the line between browser and operating system is blurry in today's episode. There's so much resource management involved in the Chrome browser that the Chrome browser actually has its own task manager. For many people, including myself, the browser is the main application that I'm interfacing with throughout the day. It has all my business applications in the browser, my email, even many of my desktop apps that are not actually in Chrome, the browser itself, are running on Electron, which is a framework for building cross-platform apps that uses Chromium. So these apps like Slack or GitHub, the GitHub app for macOS, these things are essentially built using Chrome. So Chrome runs a ton of your applications. David Bokan is an engineer on the Chromium team at Google, and he joins the show to describe the engineering of Chrome and the development and the release process. David also gives his thoughts on future developments for browsers, apps, and the internet. It was great talking to David, and I'm hoping to do more shows on browsers and Chrome in particular, because I am really unfamiliar with this territory. So I hope you like this episode nonetheless, and I'm looking forward to doing more of these flavor of shows. Before we get started, I want to mention that we are looking for writers, and we're looking for a videographer for Software Engineering Daily. We've got a couple other roles, and you can find those as well at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs, and you can apply to those jobs if you think you'd be a good fit, or if you know somebody who might be. And if you're interested in getting involved in Software Engineering Daily on a lower commitment basis than an employment basis, you can go to our GitHub repo and get involved with the open source community. That's github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We'd love to have you involved. We've got mobile apps. We've got a browser-based app. And those apps are in the App Store. The browser-based app is softwaredaily.com. And again, we'd love to have you in the open source community at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. So with that, let's get on with the episode. David Bokan is an engineer on the Chromium team. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Happy to be here. Thanks. Chromium is an open source operating system. There's also Chrome OS. Well, I guess Chromium is both a browser and an operating system. I think Chromium OS would be the operating system version of it. How did the Chromium project get started? So I haven't been around since the beginning, so maybe I'd, I'm not the best person to speak to that. But basically around 2008, I think, maybe a little bit before I went public, Google started working on a browser. 
And I think the Chrome OS project started a little bit after that. Uh, and it was basically to fulfill the vision of, of computing completely on the web. So Chrome OS is sort of like, these days, I guess it has its own local apps, but it's everything is sort of running in the browser. The history, I'm not super caught up on, so. No problem. We can talk about the contemporary state. What's the relationship between Chromium, Chromium OS, Chrome, Chrome OS? There's kind of four different projects here we can multiplex this conversation across. Can you level set us with the relationship between these projects? Sure. Uh, I've seen the confusion here quite a bit. So Chromium is the open source bits of, of everything that we work on. So that includes like pretty much everything these days. Uh, the only things that aren't included in Chromium would be sort of the proprietary bits. So things like the Flash Player and I guess some of the branding. So from Chromium, when Google actually goes and builds the browser, Chrome browser, so they add all the, those proprietary bits on, add some of the branding, and then we call it Chrome. So that's just the browser. Now from that, there's also Chromium and Chrome OS. Um, and it's the same kind of relationship where Chromium is all the open source bits, which you can go and download and build yourself. And then Chrome OS is the Google brand branded version of that. Okay. And how does, if we're just talking about the, op the operating system side of things, how does the user experience of Chromium, so for people who are totally unfamiliar with this this operating system, the, the Chromium operating system, how does it compare to a Linux operating system like an Ubuntu? Mm -hmm. Chromium is still running a, a Linux-like kernel, as far as I understand. The main difference would be that you don't go and, and install binary apps. So for example, if you're running a Linux system, you might go and, and grab some packages from your distro, or you might uh, go and build some things yourself. On a Chrome OS system, uh, everything is basically a web app. There, well, there, there's some technicalities nowadays. I guess you can run Android apps and, and things like that in it. But the sort of vision of it is that everything you do is basically just a browser window. And we try to dress it up really nicely so it doesn't look like it's necessarily a browser, but you can install a web app or like PWAs now are, are the big things. So you're not really running binaries. You're, everything is sort of often in the cloud. Can you define the terms browser and the term operating system from, from your point of view? Because I feel like Chrome and Chromium kind of blur the lines between what is a browser and what is an operating system. Yeah, definitely. I think the browser kind of is an operating system in a way. It's the operating system for the web. So really just need something to, to run like your apps. So if, if you go to like your Gmail, I mean, that's really an app, which 10 or 15 years ago, that might have been like an, an app on your Windows machine or something. But these days, it's, it's hosted in the browser. So really, the, the line is quite blurry. I guess, like on a Chrome OS system, the difference would be the sort of kernel and how we inter interface with the hardware. So the browser sort of abstracts a lot of that. So we're kind of an OS on top of an OS, in a way. And the Chrome OS perspective is that the browser is so integral to the user's workflow that we might as well integrate it closely with the operating system, or as we've kind of explored, blur the lines with the operating system. So in Chrome OS... How does the relationship between the browser and the operating system compare to if I was just using Chrome on my MacBook, for example? 
So, for example, like the task launcher, everything there, it's just launching basically a wrapper around a browser. So on your Mac, if you if you go and you launch Chrome, you kind of get the browser window with a lot of the Chrome, like the URL bar and everything like that. In the Chrome OS experience, like sometimes if you install the app, which really it's still just a web page with, with some fancy uh, dressing below the hood, but you get sort of what looks like a, a native native app. So like if you were to run something on your OSX system, it doesn't look like it's a browser. It's the same sort of idea. We want a web page to sort of not be the traditional way that you associate web pages. We want it to just the browser to get out of the way, essentially. The three core goals of the Chrome project are stability, speed, and security. Four, actually. It's also simplicity. It's the four S's. Simplicity. Okay, I didn't know it had been expanded to four. So if we're just talking about it from a browser point of view, let's just talk about it in terms of the Chrome browser. If you want a browser that is stable, has speed, has security, has simplicity, one aspect that you want is a multi-process browser. Can you explain what it means for a browser to be multi-process? Sure. So if you, I think... Firefox is maybe the example of, of the single process version of this. If you go to several web pages in different tabs in Firefox, they all look like they're running independently, but really they're all hosted in one big process, and that it also includes the browser UI. So the difference in Chrome would be if you go to two different domains in, in two different tabs, each of those has its own process. And so what that means is that we're using the operating system's isolation for each of those tabs. So they don't share the same memory space. There's no way for them to to talk to each other in a direct way. And the Chrome browser UI is also running in its own separate process. And this allows us to do like sandboxing. So for example, those tabs themselves don't have access to, to like really powerful primitives on your system. So they can't go and read the hard disk themselves. They can't go and, and access some of the hardware devices. Uh, they have to go and ask the browser process to do that on their behalf. Okay, so Chrome is a browser, which assumes it's always connected to the internet. And all of the Google apps assumed that they were online in the past, but an operating system has to be able to run stuff offline. And apps for Chromebook, for example, increasingly have offline functionality. What are the engineering constraints around Chrome apps today? Do they still need to be online, or is there offline functionality that's required? So recently, there's been like a much bigger push to to allow this kind of offline functionality because you can't always be connected to the internet. You know, it was great having a Chromebook and then being able to use it everywhere until you got onto a flight uh, and you needed to to do some work. So really, recently, there's been some really nice advances in in web APIs. So like Service Worker is a really big one, which allows you to do all sorts of local caching and basically really build apps that work very well offline. So I think that the landscape in in that sense is changing a little bit. There are some principles that Chrome shares with other networked application platforms. So for example, when I think about Android, I remember doing some Android development in the past and one principle is you never want to block the UI thread. And you also want your different network calls to be able to execute asynchronously so you don't block when there's calls across the network, you know, if, you, if you're in a browser or if you're on a, a heavily networked Android application, both of these cases, you want your network calls to be asynchronous so that the, you know, you can make a call out to the network and then continue processing locally and then wait for the callback across the network. Can you give some more details on how to architect 
the threading model around a heavily networked application like a browser? Yeah, so uh, this kind of has been a problem traditionally, and it goes back to the legacy of the web, which kind of started out as a document platform. And it sort of got this application framework like kind of bolted on uh, after the fact. So really, there is no threading in web apps. It's generally everything is basically on your UI thread. And so this has been quite the, the challenge for people who are trying to build these high-performance modern apps. These days, the, the recommended pattern is to really chunk up all of your work and to really make sure that you're not running anything long on the JavaScript thread because that is your UI thread. So if you're, if you're executing any kind of cross-site network requests, really you should be doing those asynchronously uh, and with like promises and not waiting on the response for that. Uh, we have seen like sometimes when you, we go and do like a performance analysis on a web page and we'll notice like, oh, we're, they're doing a synchronous request here. And so, yeah, that's going to block up. You can't scroll all of a sudden. You can't do anything. We've also tried to mitigate some of these issues. So one of the patterns that's used in, in all browsers actually today um, is this sort of off-thread user interaction. So when you go to scroll, when you do pinch zooming, whenever we can, we try to do that on a separate thread. And there's an enormous amount of logic and complexity around that. And we sometimes have to fall back to the main thread anyway. But there's a lot that happens in the browser to make sure that we're, we're staying off that really busy UI thread. Chromium is the open source version of Chrome. How closely does the closed source development, how, how does that development track the Chromium development? I've been on the Chrome team now for about five years, uh, and I don't think I've ever touched anything in the internal repo. So it's really a small part of, of Chrome. I think these, like the PDF plugin, for example, was open sourced at some point. So it's really been moving more and more to get more of the bits of, of Chrome open sourced. Really, these days, I think it's just a couple of, of things that I think like codecs and, and some proprietary bits like that. Okay. And can you talk about your interaction with the release process a little bit more, getting the the Chromium browser from when it's just in an open, in its open source instantiation to how that code makes its way into production for Chrome users? Sure. So Chrome ships every six weeks, which is really nice. We try to keep an evergreen model where, where users are always up to date. So how that works is generally we'll do development on the tip of tree on like the, our trunk. And after six weeks of a release cycle, at some point we'll cut a branch. And so that will become the beta branch at some point. So for a couple of days after that branch is cut, we do a lot of work to try and stabilize that branch. Any kind of issues that we find, we land first in, in the tip of tree and then we merge those patches back to the branch. Once that branch is getting to a, a place where we can actually ship it out to, to lots of users, we'll promote that to a beta. And beta has like, I'm not sure about the numbers, but it's a, there's quite a significant number of users that run in beta. And for, I'm not sure exactly the time, but it's a couple of weeks, beta will actually go and we do that same sort of stabilization process where we'll land patches in, in the tip of tree, make sure, verify that they're actually fixing issues and then merge them back to beta. And then after a couple of weeks of this, once everything is stabilized and there's no major blocking issues, that beta will be promoted to stable and, and pushed out to all of the live users. WebKit is a browser engine that is in Chrome. What is the purpose of WebKit? Can you describe what WebKit is? Yeah, so actually these days, Chrome is running on Blink, and Blink is a fork of WebKit. So long ago, Apple created the WebKit project, which was the rendering engine for Safari. And initially, when Chrome first released, it was using that same rendering engine. Around 2013, we forked Blink from WebKit and have been using that ever since. 
And so the rendering engine is basically everything that interacts with, with the web. So what Blink will do is, is go out and grab, grab the HTML, the JavaScript, the, the CSS, parse, do all the parsing, uh, build the DOM, and then basically put pixels on the screen. So it's generally responsible for everything that's not the browser Chrome. So like your URL bar and the tab strip and everything, that's all more like Chromium. And then everything that's actually content is Blink. And that includes things like user interaction and input events. And it doesn't include JavaScript. That's handled by uh, V8. But it, it basically, the main thing that Blink does is, is take HTML and spit pixels out onto the screen. Got it. So a browser is a sandboxed way of accessing web applications. We've historically needed a lot of security between the browser and the operating system. But... Our files and other sensitive information are increasingly in the cloud. So in some sense, the security model around our files is becoming different, arguably more secure. Does that change how we can think about the security barriers between the operating system and the browser? So if, if our files are no longer as much relegated to, to the local OS... How does that change security barriers and what our applications can do? So, I mean, you still have to store things locally. So I think you still do really care about local security. So that's one of the main reasons we do this sandboxing. Chrome is you don't want, if a web page compromises the process that it's in, uh, you don't want it to suddenly be able to start reading and modifying files on, on your hard drive. Although we have things like Google Drive or Dropbox or name your your cloud file system, you still do need a, a sandboxed model to some degree. You don't want your browser to have uninhibited access to the operating system. So I should have just asked you, what are the security barriers that need to be in place between the operating system and the browser? So basically access to any kind of hardware or you know, things like cameras and, and microphones, obviously you don't want just any web page to be using without the user's permission. Uh, basically, it's about what the user expects. Like the browser is is delegating, I guess, like the permissions between the OS and the user. So app, there's like a little bit of tension there because apps always want to do interesting things. Like you have a microphone and a camera on your computer for a reason, but you don't necessarily want every single web page you visit to be using those. So it's more of a gatekeeper than than actual complete box around your OS. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the security model of Chrome just in more detail, some principles and some security mechanisms? So I'm, I'm not super well caught up on those. So maybe just in a general sense, I think the process model is really the main thing. And it's, it's sort of in the forefront these days with like the recent Spectre and Spec Hammer attacks. One of the big overarching projects currently going on in Chrome right now is the site isolation project. And what that's doing is we already have uh, process isolation between tabs. Um, so again, if you go to uh, two different domains and two different tabs, generally they'll get their own processes so that if you go to like evil.com and it manages to compromise the render and, and, and break out of its uh, security box, basically, like it can't go and start reading uh, data from any other web page. So we want to extend this to work on iframes as well. And so today, like if you go to any web page, there's potentially dozens of different domains being embedded in any web page, be it ads or some kind of other embed. We want to keep those all also in separate processes, for the mostly for the security benefits. There are some other potential performance implications that might be good, but yeah. 
what are the threat vectors that you worry about the most? Like, what are the the security vectors that could potentially come through the browser and affect the operating system? Yeah, so I think definitely the isolation aspect is a big one of it. Because again, if you're browsing, you know, I might be just doing some random browsing when I have a my bank website open in another tab. So really, these days, since everything is so much in the cloud. I may be less worried about things on my computer and I'm more worried about web pages being able to go and exfiltrate like my bank data um, or steal some of my passwords from like a password manager and things like that. So I think the the isolation and keeping everything sort of in its own separate box is really the, the goal. When I walk away from my browser, it may need to update and the way it works today is at least on on my version of chrome i have to manually approve an update how does the update system work in chrome and in chromium do you are there any forced updates you do or uh, and also what happens when an app update actually executes so updates are automatic i'm not sure if you you have maybe some some kind of a special setting but in general your browser will update in the background and you'll just get a notification that your browser is updated and you have to restart it. The idea there is is very often like people, if, if you pester people to go and, and actually do the update themselves, very often they just won't because they don't know or, or they, it's just that you're not really interested in, in the mechanics of the browser and, and updating applications. And this is bad for security and, and all sorts of other reasons. So we really want to make sure that everybody is running on, on a fresh version so that they can browse the web confidently. We do our best to fix any kind of new security issues that come out. Um, and so getting those rolled out to everybody as quickly as possible has been uh, a really good thing, I think. Uh, yeah, no, I think I realized it's that the, the color of the arrow changes. So I have, you know, you have to, you see the green arrow first, and that just means, hey, the browser has updated and you should restart it. And then when it turns yellow and eventually red, it's saying, hey, this is actually more imperative. You really need to restart your browser. Right. Yeah. So what that's saying is it's already it's already downloaded all everything that you need in the background, and all you need to do is restart. I see those arrows sometimes too, and it is a little bit frustrating, but it, it is a little bit of peace of mind when, when you update and you know that uh, at least all the known security vulnerabilities are, are hopefully already patched. There are Chrome extensions, these different features you can add to Chrome. There's also, I think there's there's Chrome apps, right? Like there's a- actual apps that are running somehow through Chrome. Can you talk about the different ways that, that people can run applications that are custom built for Chrome slash Chromium? So I, I only really know a little bit about the extensions, even less so I think about apps. Basically extensions uh, just allows you to go and write some, some HTML and JavaScript that uh, can plug into to the web pages that you're browsing. And that allows you to go and do all sorts of things like modify the page that you're currently on or get some information out of it or, or give you some kind of extra actions. You can think of it kind of as just like plugging in a little bit of extra code to the web page. Applications, I know this only maybe at a high level. I think it's basically just packaging up all of the the JavaScript and HTML that you would normally have on a web page. Um, And in the case of Chrome OS, for example, you can add a manifest and and some additional permissions. And and if a user actually installs it, and so they signal that they actually trust this app, um, it might get some more security permissions that the traditional desktop application might get as well. Um, so, for example, like accessing a camera and then, well, these days I think you can do that from the web, but gen- like writing to disk, for example. 
Do you spend much time with the Chrome OS team, or are you mostly just thinking about things from the browser's point of view? So interestingly, I started off technically on the Chrome OS team, but very quickly got sort of shuffled into working more on, on the web platform. So I've been working almost primarily on, on Blink for, for the last five years. Now and then I'll, I'll interact a little bit with, with Chrome OS folks. It's generally, they are very much plugged into the web platform. So everything that they do is, is kind of running on the same platform that we're providing. So examples of this are like scroll bars in Chrome OS are the same scroll bars that we use on the web. So that's sort of the thing I kind of work on in, in Blink. Um, and so I've had to interact with folks on the, on the Chrome OS team to get them to work the way that they would want to, for example. What's the hardest thing about building a scroll bar? So they're very different depending on which platform you're on. So having to maintain uh, the different kind of behavior between like Mac OS X or, or Windows and Linux and Android, it's just a really big, big challenge to, to make sure that we can support every different kind of behavior for every different kind of UX. And then make sure that, again, we have that whole complicated machinery that I mentioned before for having like that off-thread off user input. So we have separate paths for when you go and you do a scroll and it, it happens on that off thread to make sure that it's nice and smooth versus when you do it on that busy UI thread. Um, and so having all these different modalities and different UX and, and what looks like a really simple issue actually ends up being tons and tons of maintenance work and, and headaches. And it sounds like a lot of that is because of the cross-platform aspect of it. You, the fact that you do have to be compliant with OS X and Android and Windows and and I was looking at some of the best practices within the Chromium team around how these things are shipped, how you ship operating specific, platform specific notions of code for each of these different platforms. And you, from what I saw, you you have just these different files, like in in a in a given directory. For the Chromium project, you might have eight different files, and you know each of them executes only on a specific operating system version or some specific user agent version. Yeah, so this has been one of the most humbling things. I think uh, starting on Chrome is is realizing just how difficult multi-platform development is. Because again, you have uh, you'll have these different versions of of a feature. And it turns out that like oh, these these might be really well tested on Windows and Linux, but because Mac works somewhat differently, it's a little bit hard to write tests for that. Um, and so then you end up getting regressions and bugs on Mac. So it has been getting better over time. I think that we've been putting a lot of effort into making sure that things work uh, as close to each other on different platforms as we can. But like, for example, scroll bars are still an example of something that is, is really difficult to make it common and consistent across all the platforms. So I know you, you said you were doing most of your work these days on Blink, which you said that's the rendering engine? Yes. But do you have to think about the future of what the Chrome application runtime is going to be or the, the Chromebook world? Because there's the fact that Google is making Android apps runnable on Chrome and as we talked about, there's the Chrome extensions and the Chrome applications. Do you need to know about any of this, or can you just kind of stay in your lane and focus on the the Blink side of things? 
I sort of keep up mainly a little bit out of interest and curiosity, but for the most part, I, I focus on, on the web aspect of it. I think, again, if you think of it as sort of an OS, I think those are, are maybe more like the OS for like Android apps and the OS for some other kind of apps. We're really working on the OS for the web. So, so Blink is, is the web, we consider it the web platform. And so we're building the OS for web apps. Uh, and for the most part, that's very separate from all the other things that are going on in Chrome OS. What languages is Chrome written in? Most of it is in C++. That's the vast majority. We have some scripts and, and tooling that, that is done in Python. And then the Android version is a little bit of Java as well for, for things that are UI. But the, the primarily C++. And has there been any assessment of, could we do any of this in Go, maybe use Rust? Have other languages been considered? So... The Chrome code base is enormously large, uh, so I think at this point, like the ship has pretty much sailed. I have just been in kind of like keeping tabs on on Firefox and their efforts with like Rust and 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 writing. Uh, they were writing that new engine in, in Rust, Servo? and I think Servo, right? Um, and that's super interesting and, and very cool technology. But I think the the challenge of of bringing something the size of Chrome all the way into into something new like that would be pretty daunting. When you look at that browser that they've built with Rust or the browser engine, what are the advantages of Rust from from a language level? Are you familiar enough with the language to know kind of what the... Do, is there anything you sort of envy that you... abstractions that you wish you, you had in C++? So I don't know much about it. Um, the thing I've heard a lot is, uh, I think, like memory safety. So in, in C and C++, it's very easy to shoot yourself in the foot and, and sort of start reading and writing memory past what you intend. From what I understand, that's more difficult, if not impossible, in Rust. Um, so I guess that's the the really nice thing. Like they touted the security benefits of it, but yeah, I don't I don't know it in depth enough to, to actually have a more nuanced position. And what challenges around memory management do you encounter in in writing a browser? Because if your browser has a memory leak, it's really unfortunate because I never close my browser. That's one of the reasons I see those red arrows that tell me to close Chrome and reopen it. And if there were a memory leak, then this would just be a kind of a catastrophic application for me. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest challenges is often the memory leak is not necessarily in Chrome, but it's in, in one of the web apps. So for example, like I keep my Gmail tab open for, for months at a time. And once in a while, we'll, we'll notice that like, hey, my Gmail tab is using like four gigs of RAM. So that it's, it's also possible that the apps are actually misbehaving as well. Um, so like, again, Chrome is kind of a little bit of an OS of its own. So it's not necessarily that there's a memory leak in Chrome, but it could be a memory leak in, in the web app. The other challenge there is that Chrome is such an enormous project with so many different pieces and components and, and features that it does tend to balloon uh, fairly quickly. So we do our best to, to try and, and minimize how much memory it uses, but it's a constant battle. Like we're treading water and then every once in a while do a little bit better, but the, the arrow is, is a slow creep up. What constraints can you put on different tabs? For example, if there's some tab I have open to a recipe site, and that recipe site just has a million different JavaScript ad tags, I don't find that it just completely destroys my operating system performance. So clearly there's either some sandboxed amount of memory that it's allocated. It's, it's not able to leak into dominating my entire memory space on my computer. Are there some constraints around how much memory a given page can take? 
Yeah. So today, everything on that one page would be in its own process. So your operating system is probably doing a bit of work there. I don't think that we have like an explicit memory limit on that, but that does mean that like the page itself is running really badly, right? Like one of the interesting ideas was with this site isolation project. Um, if you take all of those extra like add add iframes or or like a, who knows a Bitcoin miner maybe, and then just throw it into its own process and maybe throttle that process and give it lower priority, that would actually make the the main application run much better. Can you talk more about how that works? I know you touched on it earlier, but explain how site isolation works. Right. So when you load a web page today, and it might go and it it might. Uh, embed a bunch of iframes from different domains. All of those go into one process in Chrome. So what would happen in, in site isolation is if we notice that the iframe is from a different domain, would want to put that into its own process. Uh, and so that way it can't talk directly to, to the actual page. The challenge there is that a lot of the web kind of relies on this, being able to it changes the timing, for example, of how a web page will load. So you might be able to post message from, from your application to some iframe. And now because that iframe is in a different process, it might not have loaded yet or, or things, things work a little bit differently. But internally, basically, it's kind of similar to as if you were to open that iframe in its, in its own tab. It has less of a connection to the parent tab. Understood. So can you talk more about the resource management of Chrome from the point of view of the relationship between Chrome and the operating system. So for example, when I open up Task Manager on my, or whatever it's called, um, Activity Monitor on my Mac, and I see four or five different Chrome processes that are running, what are those processes that are running? What are those different things doing? Is there, is there some mapping from those processes to web pages or to different things running in Chrome? Can you help me understand what's going on there? Sure. It's a little bit complicated. A bunch of those will be like those tabs. So I mentioned that often, like if you open a new tab, then that uh, that page will get its own process. Uh, so you'll actually see that show up in, in the activity monitor. That doesn't necessarily always happen. So if, you're, if you've got two or three tabs and they're all in the same domain, uh, those will generally be, I think, in their, their own process. Like they'll, they'll have one process for, for the domain. This kind of varies between platforms. So like on Android, for example, because of memory constraints, for the most part, everything kind of gets shoved into one process like a traditional browser. There's also like that browser process I mentioned. So that's sort of the, the main overseeing process. And, and that does all, the, all of the privileged work that needs to happen, like writing to disk and then doing network requests and things like that. There is also a process for, for like the GPU. So for example, the, like your process for the web page will actually send a bunch of information to the browser process. And then that'll get put together with all the different information, like your UI tab strip and all the other things. And then that gets all sent to a GPU process to actually get pushed out to the graphics card. So it's it's really a big machine with lots of complicated moving pieces. So you're kind of seeing the internal guts there. If you're interested, you can also, there's um, in Chrome, Chrome's got kind of its own task manager. So if you go to the little hamburger menu, and I think in like more tools, there's a, I forget the exact name, but it's something like a task manager. And you can see all of the different processes that are running in Chrome and, and what they are and, and how much CPU they're using and things like that. It's a little bit more informative than just seeing like Chrome helper process in the Mac task manager. It's actually called task manager. I just opened it up. I'm looking at it. It's got a lot of subframes. Yeah, so that's site isolation, I think. Some site isolation experiments going on right now. And well, sorry, it actually shipped on desktops. 
in Chrome 67, I think, if, if I'm right on that. But yeah, so on desktops, you will actually get isolated subframes now. So you'll see a process for iframes on a page. So I'm looking at this task manager, and I sorted by CPU consumption and memory footprint among all of the different tasks that are running across Chrome. And at the top, it looks like the CPU is the the browser itself is dominating in terms of CPU. And so what are the most CPU intensive tasks that the browser itself has to do? So that's a little surprising to me. Usually I, I would think that the actual tab processes would be the ones that are fairly CPU intensive, uh, particularly if you're doing any kind of like video or audio uh, like we are now, I would expect that to actually be, be doing quite a bit of work. Zencaster is up there. This is, we're recording over Zencaster. Zencaster's taken up 62 whatever CPU units these are. And then the browser is it got a, 121 CPU units. Right. So I, okay, that does make sense, I guess, because we're recording some audio. And so it's it's got to be sending data between the browser and the tab process. So both of those would actually be in, in heavy use. Fascinating. Yeah. So the, and the other things I'm seeing are tabs, apps, and then a bunch of, like I said, subframes under accounts.google.com, et cetera. So, but if I were to go to my computers, my operating system task uh, activity monitor itself, I would see something different. And I think you mentioned, so if I've got a bunch of things that are in the same domain, so for example, a bunch of Google Docs processes, would those get co-scheduled into some task manager notion that will just show up as one single process under the activity monitor of my operating system? So it depends. There's a lot of flexibility in in which how we split up different tabs and different pages between processes. I'm not super caught up on on how we actually do that today. I know that there's been like talk if if your system is under memory pressure, then perhaps we'll like squash things into into fewer processes or, or not. Uh, in general, if it's on a different domain, I think it should be in its own process. If it's from the same domain, I think it should be in the, in the same. But yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at that, so I'm not sure what, what that is today. No problem. What about memory management and garbage collection more broadly? How much time do you have to spend thinking about garbage collection? Luckily, not too much. So there's there's two garbage collectors, at least that I'm aware of in Chrome. So the first is the V8 garbage collector, uh, and that's for everything JavaScript. So that's more to do with like page authors and then the web apps. And then internally inside of Blink, we actually a few years ago launched our own garbage collector for things going on inside of Blink. So when I'm writing code, for the most part, I just have to make sure that when I initialize things, I hold them in, in the right kind of handles and it basically uh, figures out when the object is no longer actually in use and then makes sure that it tears everything down. Blink used to use reference counting, which was a little bit trickier and would often get things like uh, cycles, so then you'd leak memory like that. Uh, but I think it's been a really, over time, I think that the garbage collection has shown that it's actually been a really nice thing to have. I want to take a step back and discuss the team aspect more and the uh, interaction and how development works on the Chrome team. Can you describe sort of the, the structure of the the different teams that are working within Chrome? Right. So the we have like the web platform team. And so that's the team I'm on. That's responsible for Blink, but also generally things like spec work, 
and working with other browser vendors on, on making sure that the web is interoperable between different browsers and how we evolve the, the platform and the APIs. Outside of that, there's more like, I guess, Chrome browser team, which, which would work on, on the actual UI and, and various features like autofill and things like that. Beyond that, I guess Chrome OS would be its own separate team. Just from what I know within the web platform team, for example, we break up into various small sub teams. So like I work on the input and scrolling team. There's different teams for things like painting, for layout, for style. So it's quite a large team and it breaks down based on, I think, like responsibilities and, and like ownership of code. And specifically the blank engine and the scrolling feature that you're working on right now, that's a core piece of functionality that's really important to all the different browsers that get shipped across all the different user agents as we've, we've already touched on. What's the process for being able to test all those different platforms? Right. So testing is always a, a bit of a challenge, again, just because we do have so many different configurations and options. We do have like a large repository of tests. I think one of the most exciting things going on recently is this push for web platform tests. And what that is, is a common repository shared between all the different browser vendors. And so anybody can go and they can add tests there. And this is the preferred method, I think, now whenever we can, we try to add web platform tests for things because that means automatically we get uh, coverage across not just Chrome, but also like Firefox and Edge and Safari. And so when we find a bug, if we go and we fix it and we, we create a web platform test for it, we can see on a dashboard, okay, this bug exists. This bug is now fixed in Chrome. You know, maybe it never occurred in Edge and it's still broken in like Firefox and Safari. It also helps with new feature development. So when we build new features, uh, we add web platform tests, and then that really lowers the barrier of entry for the other browser vendors to go do it because uh, they can very quickly write up an implementation, see whether or not where it's interoperable and where there might be issues. And how does the release process work when uh, you know you've you've got all the you know the tests are approved? Can you just go ahead and and ship your code and you know just like continuously release it, or is there there's a release cycle to different versions of Chrome? Right. So the major milestone versions is based on like a six week release cycle, as we've talked about. Every time that we land a piece of code, it goes through a set of try bots that we have. So it, it goes and runs almost all the tests in, in our test suite. And it will only land in the Git repository if it actually passes those tests. Past that, like before we ship a Chrome version, like everything is constantly building and constantly running tests. So hopefully tests should always be passing. And generally, where we, where we do see failures and bugs, it's usually things that we were missing a test or some kind of a new feature, and, and we didn't quite have that edge case tested. So there's a, a running debate around to what degree browsers should be able to block ads or how they should regulate web experiences. And I'll just say from my firsthand experience, I'm kind of at the point where if I see a link to a domain name that I'm not familiar with, if I'm on my phone, I will usually just not click it because the loading experiences for so many of these sites are just so offensive and, and just you know make my phone run really slow and it doesn't work very well. What's your perspective on to what degree a browser should regulate the minimum tolerable web experience? So I'll just clarify, I'm, I'm speaking on like personal capacity and not for yeah. Google or, or yeah, anybody. Yeah, of course. 
But there is a tension there um, because, like you said, the experience does really suck. And so if, if you just let everything in, then people will just stop using the web because the experience will be so much better elsewhere. At the same time, I think if you block everything, that will really undermine the business model of the entire web. And so like that might be good in the short term. But then if you take a longer view, you know, there won't be any content made for the web because it'll be very difficult for people to make a living off of it. So I think the ideal thing that you want is to strike a bit of a balance where you really block out the most egregious ads and, and make the experience good enough that people don't mind the fact that there are ads on the page because it doesn't really affect the experience of the page. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I tend to agree with you. So when we think about all these different runtimes for networked applications, you know, we've got mobile apps, we've got web apps, we've got, you know, the, like we said, browser extensions and, and Chrome apps and Electron apps and all these different surfaces for applications. And then there's also things like the instant, app, or what is it, instant progressive web apps, these kinds of things. There's a lot of different experiments that are being run. And then you've got things like React Native that you know make it easier for these cross-platform applications to be written. Do you have a belief for, you know, we've got all these different application surfaces are, are going to go. Do you have a strong belief in, in terms of how things are going to work out? Or do you just kind of feel like we're running a bunch of different experiments and like time will tell? Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm probably a little bit biased in that uh, I think and at least hope that the the web kind of wins out. My personal feeling on this is that it's maybe we're seeing a similar kind of curve we did with when desktops first came to prominence, where everything was sort of just like a binary that you install, and then eventually the web kind of caught up with the capabilities of PCs, and then you started to see more and more things shift on the web. With mobile, we're seeing kind of a similar thing, where for a long time, like you really couldn't do very much on the web, and so everything was was an app. I think we're sort of starting to see a bit of a, an inflection here where you can do more and more things on the web where what you needed an app like an Android or an iOS app to do a few years ago, you can now do on the web. Personally, I think that the web has a lot of really nice advantages. It's like everything is indexable. You can you can go find it. If I go to like a restaurant or something and they have some kind of a special, special deal, you don't have to install an app um, that might be like tens of megabytes large and you have to go through like a Play Store. You can just go and, and type in a URL and everything is ephemeral. There's, it's not changing like your system state or adding, ad, adding anything to it. So like that's personally where my loyalty would lie. I know people differ there and like Android is doing a lot of work to bring some of those advantages of the web to, to Android apps. I suspect we'll see a little bit of a more of a convergence where Android apps become a little bit more like the web and the web becomes a little bit more app-like. Yeah, somebody was telling me about something called Slices, where I think you can run some portion of an Android app and you could open that potentially from a browser. But I, I know, as you said, you're you're not super familiar with the crossover between Android and, and Chrome. So like that's one of the nice advantages of the web, is that you don't have to download the entire app before you run it. So if you go to a web page, you're only really taking what you need at the current time and everything just sort of downloads in the background. So like some of the comparisons between like the progressive web apps these days, which is really basically just like a packaged up web page, you know, the, the difference in size is like an order of magnitude. Yeah. And, and so the experience there is if you open a progressive web app on your phone, for many of at least, you know, the simpler apps, which, you know, a lot of business applications, you can get a long way with quote unquote simple apps. They feel like they might as well be an Android app, but it's 
it's a progressive web app, so it's basically like you're opening a browser tab, right? But it's like a domain-specific browser tab. Yeah, basically, like you're running the browser, but we do everything to not make it feel like the browser. So, for example, we might remove the URL bar and let the page customize things a little bit more to to how it should feel. I think the best examples of this are where you you can open an app and not even realize that it's a web app. I know, like I think the Twitter Lite app was actually like remarkably well done, and it feels very native and and. It's just a great example of what you can actually do with today's web technologies. And you think that that performance is is just going to get better and better over time, and and eventually this will be things will go in that direction, or that would just be your preference that things would go in that direction. So if I had a crystal ball, I'd feel a little more more comfortable making predictions. Yeah, I do. I do think like we have been adding capabilities and missing features to the web to let these things evolve this way, and I think we're going to continue to do that. So I do think like things will get better and better. But like I said, at the same time, it's it's kind of coming at it from two directions. So like native apps will also start to become more lightweight and more web-like and, and get a lot of these advantages as well. And when do you think you can get Assistant into the browser? Because the Google Assistant is quite useful. Yeah, I don't know. It is a really interesting feature in Android. It would be nice to see it integrated more with with the web, but that's that's kind of hard to do. I'm not really even, even sure how, how we'd repro- approach that. Okay. Last question. I don't, I don't know to what degree you can talk about this, but there's this Fuchsia project within Google, and it's got its own kernel called Zircon. It's got its own graphics engine called Skia. It uses Dart. Do you have any, any perspective or any knowledge or anything you can talk about around that operating system? Not, not super much. I don't exactly keep up with what's going on there. It does seem like it's a project where they're building out a lot of new technologies and trying things out. So it seems really exciting from that point of view, but I don't actually, I don't know the, the details there. Okay, fair enough. Have you looked at Dart at all? Not in depth. I know it was sort of like a replacement for JavaScript and it was meant to be like fix a lot of the things that are wrong with JavaScript. Unfortunately, I think the way that the web evolves, it's very difficult to take something that's already in, in use in practice and just like wholesale replace it. Um, so Dart had that very much going against it because it was just trying to replace JavaScript. The way that the web has grown, it's always been like slow incremental changes until like you take a look at the progress that's been made over like 10 years and it looks almost like a completely different thing now. So yeah. Actually, okay, real last question. Is there any way that WebAssembly has changed how you think about browsers? So WebAssembly is really interesting because it basically now allows you to take almost like native code and compile it into the browser in like a really performant way. So I think you're going to start seeing more and more like high performance type apps be feasible to do in a, in a browser. Recently, we noticed, I think like SketchUp, which is like a 3D modeling sketching tool um, kind of thing, has, has replaced their app with a WebAssembly version in, in the browser. Wow. Uh, and, it, and it runs like surprisingly well. So that's like a really exciting new development. All right. Well, I'll have to inspect that further. And uh, I wonder when they come out with a progressive web app. David, thanks for making the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks very much. Pleasure's mine. Wow.